Welcome to the JIMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. The JIMD is the official journal of the Society for the Study of Inborn Errors of Metabolism, and so this is sort of the unofficial podcast of the SSIM, bringing you regular updates in the world of IMD intended to educate, inform, and entice you to read more in the main journal. If you're enjoying the podcast, please click like or follow or even leave a review. But for now, settle in for this latest episode on fractionated plasma N-glycan profiling and ATP6AP1CDG. Hello there. Now, one of the few benefits of the pandemic has been how comfortable it has made us with virtual meetings. And that means that it is easier than ever for me to speak with guests from across the world. In fact, I've yet to interview a single guest in person. Today's episode straddles three time zones as I speak with authors from the recent paper, Fractionated Plasma N-Glycan Profiling of a Novel Cohort of ATP6AP1CDG Subjects Identifies Phenotypic Association. And those authors are from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Tabuk in Saudi Arabia, Dr. Hannah al Harby, and from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I have returning guest Dr. Andrew Edmondson and a newbie, Dr. Ernest James Daniel. Hannah, Andy, and Ernest, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Andy, it seems whenever we talk, it's about a CDG. I'm starting to think we need an intervention. <laughs> Maybe on my part. <laughs> But I mean, we've heard before about what brings the CDGs together as a group of disorders, but they aren't all the same, are they? What sets ATP6AP1 apart? So ATP6AB1 is an excellent condition that affects both the N and O glycosylation and results in type 2 uh, CDT. Also for the affected males, we would expect them to have hepatic involvement with immunodeficiency, so they can present with coagulopathy, elevated liver enzymes, cholestatic jaundice, low immunoglobulins level, also recurrent infections, and reduced response to vaccine. Other features include leukopenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia, pancreatic insufficiency, low serum cover and serial plasma level, hypercholesterolemia. CNS involvement is variable. Some patients are reported to have seizures sensory neural hearing loss, intellectual disability, and developmental delay. The management at present time is mainly supportive, but patients with significant hepatic involvement have been successfully transplanted. Yeah, so I think some of the key things there that Hannah said is that this is a type 2 disorder, so it occurs in the Golgi rather than in the endoplasmic reticulum that we often think about for many of the CDGs. And its inheritance is particularly interesting as it's an X-linked disorder, which isn't typical for many of the CDGs. The paper is talking about this CDG in particular, but it's also talking about N-glycan analysis, which is a subject that's come up before in the podcast. I can't for the life of me remember what that's about. Could you just remind me what that is? Yeah, sure. So just want to get in a backdrop. I just want to explain generally what are the CDG clinical tests we have. So there are two commonly used CDG assays in many labs around the world. And you might have heard one is a CDT test, a carbohydrate deficient test. And another one is the isoelectric focusing. And both these tests look at glycosylation changes on an intact transferrin. So more specifically in a CDT, the differences in glycan occupancy and the amount of silation on an intact protein is measured which helps us to determine type 1 versus type 2 CDGs, but is not as sensitive or specific to identify a vast number of growing CDGs. So a few years back, CHOP came up with this plasma and glycan assay, where we identify multiple glycans, like glycomic approach, where we use accurate mass, high-resolution mass spec to quantify all the released N-glycans 
from total plasma proteins. So we call this total plasma and glycan profiling. So in simple words, we release all the end glycans from all the plasma proteins together and quantify the relative abundance. So the test is sensitive enough to detect low abundant glycosylation intermediates, which can better identify type 2 CDGs as well. So that's the context of using total plasma and glycan profiling. Which CDGs will that pick up and, and which groups won't it detect? So it mostly identifies type 1 and type 2 CDGs because we're looking at a global picture from plasma proteins. So any subtle truncated changes in the plasma proteins can be identified by total plasma and glycan. So it's better than CDT in identifying type 2 because type 2 predominantly has end glycan processing and very subtle changes in glycan structure rather than the glycan occupancy. So it helps to identify CDT type 2 better than the usual assays like CDT and IEF. But what we have developed now, the fractionated plasma and glycan profiling is much more complex and more sensitive, you know, it gives more information. Yeah, just to go back, one example is we are profiling across all of these different CDG types. We are finding differences in how the test works between them. And going back to the last time I was on the podcast, ALG8, uh, which is adding that second glucose onto the end of a sort of fully formed glycan intermediate, has a normal end glycan profile. So we don't see those abnormal smaller intermediates. So in that one, the CDT is more sensitive, but it's sort of varying across those. And for a standard screening for a clinician to use, being able to get both a CDT or IEF and an end glycan profile can be helpful. And as Ernest mentioned, you have primarily the increase in sensitivity and specificity for type 2 defects when you use the end glycan profile. Well, thank you both. And thank you for linking back to the previous podcast. It's like you're doing my job for me. This paper is obviously discussing ATP6AP1 CDG, and you've increased the number of reported cases by around 50%. What can you tell me about your cohort? Okay. So for in this study, we have 12 patients. The youngest one is about five and a half months old, while the oldest one is 67 years old. Three patients died at the ages of five, six, and 18 months, so early in life. And the cause of death for them was liver failure, uh, but was complicated by RSV and COVID-19 infection in two of them. Consistent with other reports, we see hepatic dysfunction and immunodeficiency being the most common manifestation. However, one patient presented with isolated immunodeficiency, another one presented with hyperkinetic movement with no hepatic dysfunction and no immunodeficiency. And this finding was not previously reported in patients with ATP6, AP1, CDG. In our cohort, morphic features were not consistent among the patients. Cardiovascular manifestations were also variable. As I said, the oldest patient was 67 years old. He had interesting history. He had a history of late onset sensory during hearing loss that could be related to age. He had prolonged history of chronic diarrhea, elevated liver alkaline phosphatase levels, and low aminoglobulin level, but never need treatment. And he was diagnosed by targeted variant testing following the diagnosis of his grandson, who was a proband in this family. This patient, the proband, presented early in life and in infancy with significant liver involvement, and he required liver transplant. Also, interestingly, in this family, his older brother was diagnosed by targeted variant testing. 
And by evaluation, he was found to have mildly elevated liver enzymes and subclinical hypogammaglobinemia. So this family told us that this disorder can be very variable. Also, we have another family who, who had monocorneic diamniotic twins. Both received liver transplant. They showed some degree of variability, like in dysmorphism and degree of developmental delay and hepatic histology findings. Other features reported in this disorder, like connective tissue involvement, cutis laxa, joint hypermobility, inguinal hernia, less frequent. Other uncommonly reported features, tethered cord and cerebral moimoya and geopathy, uh, that was reported in only one patient. These findings were not previously reported in ATB6, AP1, CDG. This could be coincidental and not secondary to underlying condition, but we need more report to prove that. When you were talking about that 67-year-old, I was thinking, who is it who goes looking for CDG in a, in a 67-year-old? But obviously, yes, targeted screening. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah that was through screening. That would have been quite a reach otherwise. Um, you mentioned liver transplant. You've mentioned um, hepatopathy being a cause of death. How does liver transplant alter the disease cause? Yeah, so, so far we have, including this study, we have four reported cases of ATB6 AP1 CDG with hepatic involvement who required and had successful liver transplant. Uh, the three patients in our study, they tolerated the procedure well. However, they have complications following the surgery. Like one of them, he had hepatic artery thrombosis and biliary structure. Another one developed bright diaphragmatic hernia post-transplant. Anyway, they all recovered and they've demonstrated long-term post-transplant survival. For the twin, they are surviving more than five years at the time of the report. And post-transplant, we expected some features to persist, such as pancreatic insufficiency and the intermittent hypogammaglobinemia. And that's certainly good to hear that they're doing well. Obviously, this, this work was intended to look at the biochemical findings in this condition. What did you find with those? So, as I mentioned earlier, we have now developed fractionated plasma in glycan profiling assay. The intention to develop that was to avoid the plasma protein concentration bias in quantifying glycan abundance. So we fractionated plasma proteins to three fractions, immunoglobulins, IgG, transferrin, and the remaining fraction we kept it, which is depleted of transferrin and IgG, we call it remaining fraction. And we then release the end glycans and then analyze the end glycan profile from each fraction, which helps us that we avoid the plasma glycoprotein concentration bias. And that sometimes we see that in patients, especially in ATP6AP1, many of them have low immunoglobulins, which can create this concentration bias in plasma when we quantify end glycans from plasma proteins. So this assay is very useful in that we can normalize the amount of glycan released from each fraction to a fixed protein concentration to improve sensitivity. So what did we find? The biochemical finding, I would say, is kind of threefold. One is we found unique biomarkers that were not reported previously. So the fractionation gave us more detail. And the second point is we find biomarkers from the fractionated plasma correlated to the isolated phenotypes that we see, you know, the three fractions show clear differences and comparative glycan abundance to liver and immunodeficiency phenotypes. The third point is the data from post-liver transplant, post-IVG treatment patients gives us a picture that we can potentially use this assay to monitor the glycosylin changes of biochemical effectiveness of the treatment. I can go in more detail of exactly what are the glycosylin changes from each fraction 
So a quick example, if I may say, is previous studies have shown undersilation in ATP6AP1 using the CDT test. So in this work, we find undersilation too, but we also find other truncated glycan intermediates like high mannose and under galactosyl species. So these are unique biomarkers that we have identified that previously has not been reported specifically for each plasma protein fraction. So that gives us more information. So for patient nine uh, who had isolated immunodeficiency, we can exactly see that their fractionation profile is normal in transferrin and other fraction, but the IgG fraction gets back to normal after the IVIG treatment. So we can correlate their phenotype to specific glycosylin changes in, in each fraction. So, I mean, if people want this, do they have to send it to you guys or is this a process that other labs can do? No, this is the assay that we have developed now uh, in-house at CHOP. So they would have to send in the plasma samples to CHOP. Fair enough. And in the discussion, the other thing you talk about a lot is, is VATPAs and its role here. How, how is that relevant? Uh, yeah, so there are several CDGs known to be associated with pathogenic variants and genes encoding various subunits of the VATPase complex. The VATPase is ATP-dependent proton bump that regulates the pH of many intracellular compartments. It also has many important functions in endocytosis, intracellular transport, cell growth transformation, and entry of certain viruses and toxins into the cell, and as well in targeting uh, like newly synthesized lysosome enzymes from the Golgi to the lysosome. The VATBase complex is composed of two multi-protein domains and two accessory proteins, which are the ATB6-AP1 and the ATB6-AP2. The ATP6-AP1 present in both endoplasmic reticulum membrane and the ER-Golgi intermediate compartment membrane. It's also important in maintaining the Golgi homeostasis for glycosylation. And we already know that the Golgi structure, the ER-Golgi trafficking, and Golgi homeostasis all are essential to have proper glycosylation. As a glycan assembly is initiated in the endoplasmic reticulum and it has further trimming and processing occur in the Golgi apparatus. Therefore, if there is ATP6, AP1 dysfunction, we expect that to affect glycosylation. That's wonderfully explained. So you said at the beginning, this is a slightly unusual CDG and that it is an X-linked condition. Obviously, there are other inherited metabolic diseases where we see females manifesting signs in X-linked disorders. Are women asymptomatic carriers or can you find features of the condition in, in sort of ATP6, AP1 females? So for our study, the de novo variant rate is higher than what previously reported. But the heterozygous females in our study, they were all generally asymptomatic. They did not report any significant past medical history that can be related to CDG. And we performed the routine CDT analysis for the heterozygous mother of the two patients uh, included in this cohort, which was normal. But unfortunately, we did not have a sample for her to perform the fractionated anaglycan analysis. The only potential manifestations for heterozygous females that were described before in a single pedigree that included three mothers uh, were proteinuria and sensorineurin hearing loss that possibly age-related. And also they had normal glycosylation studies. Um, however, there are still many unknowns in this disorder. It was first described in 2016 and only 30 patients are reported. 
So lots of unknown unknowns, as it were. So, I mean, the, the other thing that's clear from what you've been saying is that there is obviously a lot of variability with the same genotype. If you've got a gentleman presenting at 67 who no one has been overly concerned about, he's had a family, but you've got children presenting in early childhood with exactly the same genotype, it must be that you haven't got good genotype phenotype correlation, or is that the exception that proves the rule? So, as you said, we don't have like a well-established genotype phenotype, but we may have like some idea about some of the genotype as the the most commonly reported one, the glutamine 346 lysine. This was the most commonly reported and that was associated with significant liver involvement and resulted in early death in about half of the reported patients. But there's still much more need to be known about this disorder. Um, and so finally, the CDG as a whole are a group of disorders where we're really holding out for meaningful therapies. Although you've talked about two treatment options in the context of this in terms of IVIG and, uh, and liver transplant being used to ameliorate some of the components of the disease. You mentioned that your insights may be useful in identifying biomarkers for the disease. I guess, does that mean these could be useful if other treatments do become available? Yeah, as you mentioned, there are a couple of medical treatments that can be used for manifestations of ATP6-AP1 with liver transplant and immune therapies like IVIG. So there, there are some treatments for this type. And what we show in the paper as well is that you can monitor the response there. So you have improvement in the transferrin glycans when you have a liver transplant. And so similarly, we would expect with other treatments that may become available, we could use this fractionated and glycan to look at the glycosylation modulation of those treatments on different compartments in the body which I think is really interesting, fascinating. And having these biomarkers is becoming increasingly important, particularly in rare disease, where it can be hard to structure a, a long interventional study and adequately power it given the few patients, but by adding the additional knowledge that comes from biomarkers and showing their response, we have increased confidence that our therapies are doing what we intend them to do. Thank you. It's always nice to try and finish on something of a, an upbeat note when we talk about rare diseases. If you would like to read more about this paper, about ATP 6AP1 CDG, or about um, fractionated plasma and glycan analysis, uh, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for ATP 6AP1 CDG. All that remains is for me to say um, thank you to Hannah, Ernest and Andy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, yes, well done for managing the noise challenges today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.